Open wide for some soccer! We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! Fucking thing sucks! Hello, hello. Welcome to Open Wide for Some Soccer. My name is Seth Bertelny. Alongside me are my soccer super best friends, Pablo Mauer, Thomas Floyd. Uh, what's up, guys? That's a, a new label for us, soccer super best friends. Yeah, I'm used to soccer amigos, soccer brothers till the end. Soccer homies till I die. Yeah. Soccer compadres. Yeah. I've had a lot of those. Have you ever thought about... You know, doing like football friends, football, football, and Fox, Fox football phone in. Wow, <laughs> that was like nothing right. That was like an actual show. Was it? Yeah, I think so. All about the alliteration. Um, all right. Anyways, uh, yeah. What, what do we got tonight? We're talking about all kinds of stuff here, uh, as as usual. Uh, if you want to call in three four seven seven five six six two seven six, you can Skype NASN Soccer. You can tweet us. At OWFSS, uh, going to be joined here in a minute by uh, Paul Tenorio to talk about better Orlando City action, and uh, Dan Dickinson later in the show to kind of chat about NYCFC. And, and we're going to talk about the uh, announcement today that MLS is uh, heading toward Minnesota United as uh, team number twenty-three. Yes. Yes. Rapidly, yes. rapidly heading towards uh, their eventual goal of 65 teams. Yes. Yeah. 65 teams by 2022. I want to see... It's really going to pick up. I want to see uh, expansion into the, the sort of U.S. territories, you know? Maybe like uh, sporting FCSC Johnston Atoll 2016 United <laughs> Athletic Club. I don't know. I, Just I think, putting it out there. I think Shakhtar Virgin Islands has a little bit of a ring to it. <laughs> I re- I re- to, to to be one of the, the top leagues in the world by 2022 or whatever the hell it is, I really do think we need to involve the Virgin Islands. I want FC be a great road trip. I yeah. want FC Nome in Alaska just so they can build a stadium up there and then host uh, U.S. World Cup qualifiers against Central American nations <laughs> in Alaska in February. Hey guys, before we get into some Orlando City talk, speaking of Orlando City, I have to express. A little bit of disappointment that we haven't had a winner to our contest from last week. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I didn't. Um, we asked you guys to take a picture with Long Tan and have him hold up a sign that says, Long Tan loves open wide for some soccer. I love open wide for some soccer. Something to that effect, because we did have somebody actually tweet us a picture earlier with themselves in long tan. We, we offered you a prize pack that included we, a, Pablo an, an, Andrew, an Andrew Shue mini LA Galaxy poster. Uh, Lewis Creighton uh, Liberia National Pride yeah. MLS and, trading card. And torn out of a magazine a Freddie Adu milk ad. Yeah. <laughs> we have a fantastic deluxe prize package and yet in week one no takers. That's disappointing. All right. Uh, all right. Speaking of Orlando City, let's let's welcome uh, Paul Tenorio into the show. Paul, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm I'm actually sitting here watching the Vancouver Whitecaps Chicago Fire game to have an idea of what Orlando City is up against on Saturday. 
I'm I'm uh, sorry. That's unfortunate yeah. for yeah. you. Isn't that kind yeah. of depressing? A man, you're a man dedicated to your craft. Uh, anybody anybody <laughs> who watches the Chicago Fire these day g- game these days is the, uh, the Vancouver Chicago game. Incidentally, the first ever MLS game played on a sponge. <laughs> <laughs> Never seen that before. So yeah. Anyways, um, I, I guess let's just start, uh, Paul, by kind of gathering your your general impressions on. Orlando's first two games, obviously, an expansion side, you're going to have uh, the usual hiccups and sort of lack of chemistry. But what, what, what have you thought of them out of the gate? Well, you know, I, I mean, considering what you're talking about, the fact that this, this is a team that's been together for fewer than less than two months. I mean, it's, it's not been a long time that they've been kind of gelling as a team. I've actually been quite impressed with the way they played. I think that um, in both games so far, they were the better team. They held possession uh, really well against NYCFC and and I thought fairly well on the road in Houston and um, you know that's the that's the way this team is built. But then on the other side, the thing I was I've been more impressed by because I didn't expect it is just how how organized they've been defensively, especially considering they've had kind of a revolving door at center back, um, Sean Saint Ledger and Seb Hines and Aurelian Collin, and then he picks up a red card and they've got to scramble to figure things out and you know they've allowed one shot on goal over two games and that was mixed discrude's goal in the opener so um i i think right now orlando city has to be pretty pleased with the way they've played the way things are coming together and you know the next step is just putting together everything in the final third getting that last pass and kind of getting that first goal kind of normal goal through the run of play and 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 i think they kind of expect um things to open up a little bit more once that happens it's just it's just missing that last pass right now yeah, the one guy on the field that everybody is going to be watching more than anyone else, obviously Kaká. Um, you know, he's he's looked pretty lively, pretty willing to not only demonstrate his skill and his tricks and so forth, but also the willingness to work hard for the team. I mean, what has your impression been of, of Kaká over the first couple of games? For sure, I think um, I kind of I had to speak up to somebody on Twitter who who tried to post a, a freeze frame of Kaká and Charleston and say he has zero defensive responsibilities with his team and doesn't work. It, he's, it's actually the opposite, and it's been that way since the preseason. He's a guy who who does does work hard. He does drop back defensively. He does more than what you'd expect a $7 million attacking playmaker to do. Um, I think it's kind of it's, – it's two things. I think, first of all, his personality is one that um, – he very much feels like what happens here in Orlando is a part of his legacy. And if you look at every stop he's been on in his career, he's won titles. He won in Sao Paulo. He won at Milan. He won in Real Madrid. Um, and he wants to win here, and, and he talks about it often. And so I think um, you're going to get a guy who, who is working hard to try to, to win a title. Um, and I think that the other part of it is just kind of um, – who he is he's not he's not the type of person who's going to sit up top and be satisfied he wants to be near the ball he wants to be on the ball as much as possible and I think he recognizes that if he puts in a little bit of defensive work it's going to put him in position to get the ball in space and and be able to turn and run at guys and that's what he loves most so um, it's really it's been nice for Orlando City because you know it's not like you're playing a man down all the time um, on the other hand, it's also been weird in transition offensively when they have the ball. He moves around so much that he doesn't play that number 10 the way it's traditionally been played in Adrian Heath's system. He floats left. He floats right. He drops deep. He constantly wants to be on the ball. And so it's taken some time, and they're still trying to take some time to adjust to how exactly 
do we play with him? How do we fill those spaces where we expected him to be and allow, and then how do we kind of get used to finding him wherever he, we, he is and getting him the ball, no matter what, you know, even if there's two, three guys around him, he's proven play me the ball anyways, and I'll, I'll wiggle my way out of it for the most part. So he, he's been, in my mind, he's been worth every penny so far. And if he can stay healthy, I think he's going to be one of the best players in the league for the next few years. And another big name on this uh, Orlando team is U.S. national team defender slash midfielder Breck Shea. And uh, that kind of gets at my question is he's been deployed as a left back in these opening games for Orlando City. I remember a few years ago when he was on Dallas, uh, then coach uh, Shellis Hyman said that he would occasionally play him at left back, but that they just couldn't afford to do that on a regular basis. He was too valuable to their attack, too critical in the attacking third to have that far back the field. Thus far, it looks like Adrian Heath has a bit of a, a different perception of Shea. What's your sense of what he brings to the, to the table at left back, and, and if perhaps we might see him move up further, further up the field to maybe accommodate someone like a Luke Bowden at left back? Yeah, um, you know, I think that I think that he's been really good at left back. I'll, I'll start there. I think that considering the fact that he hasn't really played there at all in his entire career consistently and the fact that he's still learning, I think the biggest thing for him, there's two things going on for him. One, he's got to learn his responsibilities um, where he doesn't have to think about it. He's not there yet. I think there are times you see him in a game where he is actively, you can see him make the decision. Do I step or do I drop? You know, And then he makes a decision and he drops or whatever maybe he's not to the point where it's instinctual yet and i think the second thing that people don't talk about as much is i mean this is a guy who played i mean i don't know a handful of games over two years uh and i think there's a big mental hurdle to get over when you played so little in a, such an extended period of time to have that confidence on the field that's so important especially for a player like breck who is you know by nature an attacking player and they still want him to be an attacking player in this system i think he's still not yet um, fully there where he has that confidence to go at people whenever he gets on the ball there have been a couple times where he'll get a pass from the center back and his instinct is to take one touch back and then play it back to the center back instead of turning and going at guys as they kind of want him to and i think those things will happen more and more as he gets more comfortable as he's playing more often as he's getting these 90 minutes um every week He's going to get that confidence back. You know, you're even seeing it kind of in training this last week. He's starting to go at people a little bit more. Um, so I think that's going to be part of the process. But defensively, I think he's been really, really good. I, You know, I was watching the last game. I thought he was in the right spots a lot of the time. Um, Houston kind of overloaded its right side to prevent him from getting forward. But um, I thought he made the right decisions in a number. of. There was one point where Orlando City turned the ball over in the middle of the field, and they played a quick switch. <laughs> to the right side and Shea had been shifted all, all the way over to the middle because the ball was on the opposite side of the field. And he immediately recognized the danger of the moment. And instead of kind of turning and shifting with the line, he turned and made a full out sprint towards the ball and actually forced a bad touch that I think could have saved a goal. Um, and so those types of things I think are encouraging for somebody who's played so little there. I think he's, I think he's got a chance to be a good left back and I don't see him moving up to midfield because eventually I think Carlos Rivas is the left wing um, and I think that, you know, Orlando City is kind of waiting for the right moment for that to happen. But I think that the, the Shea Rivas left side is something they think can be really, really dangerous. So, Paul, uh, I want to kind of move things off the field a little bit. I'm, I'm curious to gather your thoughts here on, um, I guess, just obviously Orlando's fan base 
Huge, huge, huge turnout for the opener, standing room only. Um, over, I think, over 20,000 tickets sold for uh, their next game. I, I'm wondering what your impression is. You know, is this uh, – obviously, I know they, they drew, you know, obviously very well as a USL side and were very successful. I mean, do you think it's a, a sustainable thing? I mean, do you, do you anticipate all these games being very well attended kind of once the novelty wears off? Uh, you know, is this a sustainable in the long term? I don't know. I mean, I think that's the question everyone's asking. I think even Orlando City is kind of asking that. Um, their president, Phil Rollins, was talking the other day about the idea of possibly, you know, is this a Seattle? Is this a situation where we're going to we could consistently draw 30, 35,000? Is it is it more of a Portland where 20,000 is the right number? Should we look at going to 27,000 with the stadium? And they don't really have any data points to indicate it because they've been all over the place. Um, I think that from my feel in the city that there's a lot of excitement. And I think that they're going to be able to draw 20, 23,000 every game this season. I think a big part of that, that equation is going to be that they're competitive, that they're winning games and that they're in the hunt and not, you know, at the bottom of the table. Um, but I do think it's, I do think that they're going to be a team that can, that can maybe match what Kansas city has done with their soccer-specific stadium and what Portland does. I don't think it's the smartest thing in the world to jump up to 28,000 in a stadium already just based off of one game or two games. But I do think that there is um, there's a, enough of a core fan base that's going to fill the season ticket holders, and I think that um, the excitement and the kind of outer rings of fans here in Orlando is enough to constantly have that number. And I think that the fans here are going to continue to get more and more educated about the game and about the league. And so I, I definitely think that it's something that can be sustainable. I just think the the next part of the equation is that they have to be competitive this year. And I think that's the kind of the issue that a lot of these expansion teams face is they're not built to win right away, but they kind of have to, to to maintain that momentum. And you can see the difference of a Seattle and a Portland versus Montreal and what happens if you don't win right away. So that, to me, is the big thing to watch here in Orlando. Yeah, and, and luckily – it's uh, it's MLS, so they have a better chance of making the playoffs statistically mm-hmm. than not. So that's that's always going to help. Um, you mentioned uh, their stadium. Uh, for for those of us who aren't up to date on the latest with the new stadium that's being built in Orlando, uh, where is it at? When is it scheduled to open? Where is it located in the city? Because we know MLS is big on the downtown stadiums. And most importantly, tell us about the four times life-size lion statue (laughs) that is going to be consistently rotating. Huge selling point for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm hoping it has a like a crudely constructed mechanical jaw that opens and roars (laughs) Las Vegas style. Very close to what it has. Well, let's start with the lion. I I am like (laughs) torn on how to feel about the lion. I think everyone is torn. If you talk to people, even in my own household, like I'm like, this lion could be cool. And my fiance is like, this lion is the lamest part of the stadium. (laughs) It has a rotating head, you know? So like it greets the fans as you're walking in. And then I think the plan is right before kickoff or whatever, they're going to, I'm sure they're going to play some kind of like anthem or song or do some kind of chant or clap. And the head of the lion, or I guess maybe the entire lion will turn to face the field to watch the game. Right. When you so said, much. when you said it had a rotating head, I was thinking like an exorcist yeah, style. Exactly. <laughs> Just, that you would be, tell I, I would never be like a, an architect or something like that. Yeah. The whole line rotates to face the field. I don't know. I don't know what it'll be like. It could be really cheesy. It could be really great. It could be 
great because it's cheesy. I'm interested to see how. I want to. I want to see the. I want to see the players emerge from that lion's mouth. I don't know. Spitball <laughs> in here. I'm interested to see so how it compares. Match that gets on top of the lion's back and like. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm interested to see how it, it compares with the newest accessory for the San Jose Stadium, which is an airport. So we'll have to see how that works out. <laughs> um, but as far as where the stadium is downtown, it's it's really close to downtown Orlando. It's just about two blocks or so past the uh, Amway Center, the Magic's Arena. And that's all right next to what they call the Church Street area. There's a bunch of bars and restaurants right there. So when we walked it for the groundbreaking, walked from the Church Street bars to the stadium, it was about a five-minute walk down Church Street to get to the stadium site. Um, so really, really close to the heart of downtown, really close to the bar scene and the restaurants and all of that, close to a, a Sunrail station, which is the, the public transportation transportation so it's definitely got that downtown location that uh, mls pushes so hard and i think they're kind of creating a strip of entertainment right there so you've got like the dr phillips performing arts center which is the new concert hall then the church street bars and restaurants then the amway center and now the soccer stadium all kind of in a line right there so it's got it's got all the ingredients to draw the millennials and draw the young people living in the city and it's a city that's growing a ton right now and growing younger every year, partly because UCF is right here and it's pumping out, you know, 15, 20,000 alums every year. And a lot of them are staying in downtown Orlando. So um, I think that's why it's got such a good chance to be successful. Oh, Dr. Phil. <laughs> I'm sorry. We just Googled this. You said Dr. Phillips Center. I thought you said Dr. Phil's yeah, me, Center for Performance. <laughs> me, me and Pablo both gave each other looks, and then yeah, I yeah, looked yeah. it up. And, uh, Not Dr. Phil. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if you think the organization – fans team whatever thinks that there's uh that they you know compared to maybe some of the more quote unquote cosmopolitan teams in mls that they have to fight a perception battle i mean i think uh a lot of people in this country just sort of perceive orlando as either disney world or mm-hmm. you know an, an old folks home or something like that you yeah. know uh i mean what, what do you think of that i mean, I guess it's a strange question but it just came to me right now no, I mean, I think you're right. I think, shoot, I mean, even when I was moving down here to Orlando from D.C., I, I definitely wasn't sure what to expect and kind of, you know, you think Disney and you you do think old. But um, it, and I think Orlando's trying to fight that perception. And I think they've pumped a, I know they've pumped a lot of money into downtown and into entertainment. I mean, it's one of the reasons why this stadium is being built and is going to be open next March for the for 2016 is. You know, they want to draw young people into downtown. They want to draw businesses and and hotels into downtown and kind of become more than just Disney, which is, you know, 40 minutes drive south of downtown Orlando. So um, it's actually a really young city. The median age is 32.3 in Orlando. I mean, it's young. And and like I said, it's getting younger. and, and, And there's a lot going on downtown that didn't exist before. I think they're building a lot of condo buildings. A lot of restaurants are popping up. Um, it, it's, it's definitely picking up in a way that Orlando never had kind of existed before. And I think that that's a big factor in why MLS felt, you know, that Orlando was such a great market. But certainly it's not kind of the Orlando that people think of. And I think that the team has been so great at marketing in this city. But I think their, their next goal is going to kind of market Orlando City to the country and to kind of outside of, of Orlando proper. And I think a big part of that message is why they, 
they say that they named the team Orlando City is they want to kind of be representative of the new Orlando. And that's kind of been the next big push for them is showing kind of what is happening in Orlando and, the, and, and making themselves the center of that. Yeah, we'll end on one final on-field question. Uh, currently, Orlando City has two designated players, uh, Kaká, obviously, and then Brian Rochez. Uh Have you heard any sort of rumblings about if slash when they would be looking to add a third designated player and then any potential targets in terms of positions or specific players? They actually have three designated players. Oh, um, it kind of got dropped in on like when MLS revealed its DP list or whatever, they were trying to avoid having to classify Carlos Rivas as a DP, mm. but he is a DP. Uh, there was a substantial transfer fee that they paid for him to get him from Deportivo Cali. And I think that until they're able to pay that transfer fee down, he's going to have DP status. So as of right now, uh, they don't have any flexibility to go at a guy. Um, you know, I think that in the future years, if they if they're able to buy down Rochez and buy down Rivas, they'll they'll have spots. I think they they believe that they will have the flexibility to do that in the kind of shorter term, two to three year window. But as of this right now, in this moment, in this season, uh, they don't they won't be able to do that. I, I do think though that it's worth it's worth pointing out. You know why they don't have kind of the established stars from overseas besides Kaká. They do have some really young, talented players that they feel they're going to be able to possibly sell for big money uh, in the future. And I think two guys that people need to, that people are going to start to notice and, and um, pay attention to are Rafa Ramos, who had a fantastic game against Houston, Portugal under 20 national team and Cristiano Guita, the defensive midfielder from Colombia, from Deportivo Cali as well. He's a guy who nearly was bought just a year ago by Inter Milan. There were still European suitors when Orlando City, he came in and bought him. He, he's a guy they feel has great, great potential, and I think that they're going to be getting some phone calls about as early as you know this summer and possibly in, in January. So that those are two names I think to, to keep an eye on, and I think Rivas as well. Once he kind of, I think once he fits into that left wing spot, is a guy that they feel could they could flip for for a good amount of money and open up the door to some bigger name, big money DPs in the future. All right, Paul. Uh... Obviously, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Paul Denorio, Orlando Sentinel, uh, your, your go-to source for, uh, for OCSC information, obviously. <clears throat> Once again, Paul, we appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on, guys, and look forward to uh, watching that lion turn with you guys next year. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's, well, let's, let's just hope it's as extravagant and, and you know, incredible as possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Take care. All right. You too. See ya. Okay, so uh, <coughs> are there are there any uh, comparable statues that other MLS teams could create to compete with this Orlando mascot? I try, uh, I'm, I'm imagining like I'm imagining I'm a raccoon mascot. Oh, well, I, was, okay. I was I was ridiculously going to suggest a terrifying version of Talon, but what about just like uh, I don't know Kevin Payne, <laughs> just like slowly <laughs> rotating like a bronze, you know? Or, what, what else would it, would there be? Like Cosmo, like Cosmo statue. I mean, I think. You can, I mean, can you really can you immortalize it? somebody who's alive like that? <laughs> you know. I mean, I, I think since the crew rebranded in honor of their roots, they could do three giant construction workers right, overlooking yeah. the overlooking the stadium. <laughs> be I, kind of be a cool statue, I have actually. to say, Kai Kamara's celebration. Oh, that was great. This weekend was just next level. It was. 
you, you really had to think about it. Like, if you were just yeah. a casual fan, you had no idea what was going on. You're just like, yeah. where, what is he doing? Where are these hats coming from? <laughs> Who are these two other people that are with him? He is he he was not on message with the rebrands. <laughs> they need to get him in My, line. I sort of I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there. I think maybe he just didn't realize that the logo had that, changed. That's entirely possible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, moving from one expansion side to another, we're joined now by. Dan Dickinson, uh, our our fourth member, uh, Gothamist correspondent, covers uh, what NYC Soccer Wars. Is that what we're calling it these days, Dan? Yes, with a Z, with a Z. With a Z, obviously the the (laughs) ongoing turmoil. I mean, I guess we we also call him our statistician, although we haven't really called upon Dan for stats in the last year. Yeah, Yeah, we haven't had any sad stats. (laughs) Uh, Dan, Dan, where are you right now? I am sitting in the shadow of uh, Seven World Trade and, and down in the, the battery, um, which means I'm about equidistant from Yankee Stadium and Red Bull Arena. So this is his NYC Soccer Wars. My God, dude, you're in, the, you're in the crossfire. Are you wearing a vest? <laughs> you give a, a stray, well, a stray I, volley, he could get I you. I would if I was any closer to Hofstra where the Cosmos fans would come after me. <laughs> yeah. for, for now, I'm, I'm, I'm just in a, a winter coat. Yeah, Dan. So uh, you and and our very own Thomas Floyd, you guys were both at uh, the house that Jeter built. I guess is what we're calling yeah, it. Yeah, they they called it. They referred to it as the house that Ruth built on the broadcast, actually on ESPN. No, which was a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> um, Dan, tell us tell us a little bit about the. You know, to, to those of us watching on TV, I mean, it sounded obviously. I think it was mic'd very well and stuff, and the atmosphere sounded pretty raucous you know you hear a lot of chanting this that, and the other thing what what was it like for you uh you know in person i i, I would love validation from thomas about this because we didn't get to talk after the game much but um you couldn't really hear much other than the res fans there's a very weird situation in the press box at yankee stadium it's basically right behind home plate so it's it's behind one of the corner flags and the the away supporters get put about three sections away from that so they're very close to the press box. They're very loud. They're very noticeable. The third rail and all the other NYCFC supporters groups are out in the bleachers past left center field. So, um, you know, one of one of my press box colleagues had a camera with a telephoto lens, and we were looking out there to see if they were chanting. And occasionally you would hear something, but generally there, there was nothing outside of the couple of groups around the Revolution's fans responding to the clap, 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 revolution chant with a very New York sucks right afterwards. Oh, how creative. Yeah. How creative. You know, I, I haven't had a chance to go back and listen to the, the highlights of the broadcast yet, but I, I mean, it did not give me the sense that there was a lot of hot atmosphere outside of near misses and goals where basically everybody in the crowd went ooh or ah um, as one might expect. Yeah, that is exactly my impression that I uh, shared with Seth and Pablo before the podcast. It, it, it actually had the feeling of kind of a baseball atmosphere, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, that Once uh, you got past probably the first five, ten minutes, the energy, I guess, once Davavia scored the goal and the teams kind of settled into the game, I remember thinking halfway through the first half, there was just a long stretch where you could just uh it was just kind of ambient noise as teams knocked the ball around and that you really didn't get too much energy from that from uh the supporters groups again that you could sense in the press box and i'll be the first to acknowledge that we are about as far away from the supporters groups as is possible in this stadium but yeah, i would absolutely agree with that thomas and 
you know, I, I've read plenty of comments from people who were at the game who said they love the energy. So I'm willing to admit that, you know, the press box may not have been reflective of it. But I, I you know, something that really struck me was that um, one of the one of the guys I was seated next to uh, reflected as we were nearing the end of the match that normally, you know, most of us are at games at Red Bull Arena. And when you're at Red Bull Arena, you're so close to the action that when the match is winding down, especially if it's close, um, you know, you can't necessarily, um, you know, focus on writing your gamer so that you can file immediately and get down to the press conference. Um, but the at Yankee Stadium, you were so far removed that most everybody was able to file the second the game ended because you you didn't feel as engrossed in the game as you might in other MLS stadium. And I... I I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not on a deadline when I'm at the game, so I don't really get that personally, but I found that uh, really, really interesting. Now, this is, uh, I wanted to bring up something we talked about at Yankee Stadium before the match, and it's the NYCFC supporters culture as it is at this point. And uh, what are your thoughts on the different supporters groups and the, how there's been, a, I guess, a bit of a splintering where you have a lot of smaller, fragmented groups at, uh, in addition to the big ones. Uh, uh, wh- what groups do you see emerging, and, and how important is it for uh, this franchise to establish kind of, a, I guess, more continuity with their supporters groups and, and have the particular groups that fans really recognize and want to be a part of? And, and are any of them, Dan... Um as uh, as classy or well versed as Passions Corner or the Garden State Ultras, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to drop Sons of Ben in there too after their. Uh, oh, rant yeah, that, that, we're we're going to talk about yeah, that later. We're going to get to that. <laughs> um, you know, I I honestly thought as we were marching towards the season starting that the third rail was going to be it, and it was going to be very similar to Portland in that there was one dominant group, and maybe there would be these subgroups underneath it. Um, you know, regional chapters or, you know, Passion Corner-esque groups who want to express themselves a little differently. But I thought the third rail was going to be it. Um, and as I was explaining to Thomas while we were having our media meal beforehand um, and a couple of other people we were talking to, the, you know, there had been so many small supporters groups that had cropped up with basically a Twitter account and a belief that they were the next big thing over the last two years. And so many of them had faded out and it was sort of just the third rail. But over the last month or so, you've had groups like Hearts of Oak and Brown Bag Supporters uh, or Social Club. They're not even calling themselves a supporters group. They're just a social club. And even the NYCFCforums.com are treating themselves as supporters groups. And I'm not really sure what to make of it yet. And so I'm not sure if this is going to end up. Timbers Army-esque, where you have one dominant group who just sort of takes over the section and that's it. Or if you're going to get the Southward version where, you know, you've got three groups who hate each other and can't get along at all. Is this a situation um, where they have to all unite under the banner of Blue Steel, as was suggested <laughs> by the club? I, I you know, I, I think they, they probably should at this point. I mean, why not? I, you know, one of the things that fascinated me and, and which goes into the atmospheric conversation we were just having is uh, I know that a lot of third rail members were very anti-capo. They did not want somebody standing in front of the section orchestrating chants. They wanted it to be organic as people felt like they needed to chant and the, that the section would get behind them. I'm not sure how well that worked uh, last night. Again, I 
could barely hear them. So I think I heard Seven Nation Army once, and then I believe that we will win in the 80th minute after the score was 2-0. Um, but, you know, uh, they'll figure this out. It, it will take them time. This was just the first home match. I think they do need to maybe follow. The, the, at this point, they're in a baseball mentality where they need an Oregon player maybe to go, <laughs> da, 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 and then they yeah. all go, charge. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll be – I mean, what's the – is there – let me ask you something. How many months can we make these baseball stadium jokes? Or is this just like as long as they're at the stadium, they're we can too, do it? I, I, I'm never going to stop. Yeah. yeah. There are too many of them. How have been making long-town jokes? Years. Yeah, centuries. Yeah. Okay, so jokes. he's not playing for anybody right now. So. Anytime anyone scores a goal – anytime you, anyone scores a goal in that stadium, I'm going to be like what I did with WVA yesterday. I was like – he scored many important goals, but that's the first one he scored from first base. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's just going to happen over and over again. I, you know, I can guarantee you that. Right. It was it was interesting that uh, New York scored their second goal right before the seventh inning stretch, so everybody would know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, let me let me ask you something. One more sort of off the field question before we hit a couple of performance related questions. Uh, what do you think? Do you think people keep turning out these games? I mean, obviously they sold, sold a lot of season tickets, but do you think that they can consistently draw, I don't know, let's say eighteen to 25,000 people? Well, I think eighteen's easy because they've got 15,000 season tickets. And I saw somebody mention over the last week that there is a league limit of like 2,000 or 3,000 freely distributed tickets per game. So, yeah, 18's easy. Um, whether or not they can keep hitting 25 or the 27 that they've capped attendance at, yeah, I'm not sure yet. I, you know, I ran a post this morning on Gothamist, um, and we got a lot of interesting comments from people who actually went to the game and what their experience was like. And there's been a bunch of Reddit threads as well. And there's, I think it was on Reddit, there was a, a comment from somebody who said, you know, and it was a Red Bulls fan. They said, I had five people come up to me in my, my office today who went to the game to tell me that they had gone to an MLS game and they were very excited about it. And, you know, I talked to them about it and I said, are you going to go back? And all of these people apparently had kids in youth leagues. And the response was, well, the team keeps giving free tickets to our youth league. Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I I don't think they're going to average 27 for the year. I think that as the year drags on, as the team... Um, doesn't put in performances like last night. And, uh, again, take nothing away from the team last night. They played great. New England looked like shit, in fairness. Um, but, you know, it was a great performance from uh, NYCFC. But it, it will top out at some point. The team will lose some games. The weather will get bad. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how it looks in, you know, midweek games that – Traditionally, are the ones that nobody in New York wants to come. To. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, let's, I think, let's let's be honest. That's the one thing about that stadium too is that eighteen thousand people in that stadium is going to look like shit. I mean, it's going to look yeah. like a very empty stadium. I okay, I'll, I'll go out and have a, a little bit of a devil's advocate argument to as, that, as you do. Yeah. I feel like with the layout, and I don't know, Dan, you might know this better in terms of how they've distributed the season tickets. I feel like if you concentrate on filling the stands that are right on top of the field, the outfield seats, if you will, that you can kind of create an intimate environment over there. The issue is the seats that are five miles away behind home plate. I feel like if you don't fill those seats, if you don't fill the upper deck, yes, those will be empty seats in a cavernous stadium, but I feel like it won't be as 
I don't know, it won't be as much of an eyesore having empty seats that are so far away as long as you fill those seats that are right on top of the field. You know, I don't even think it's about filling the seats that are right on top of the field so much as filling the ones that are camera side. This is the thing that Red Bulls have done a fucking terrible job of. Part of my language. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's... The, the big complaint about Red Bull Arena always is, oh, why is there nobody there? You know, you can see the Red Bull logo in the in the midfield section. So well, that's probably that's probably why they the do it. The scoreboard being, you know, down one side of the field, fill up the one that's opposite the camera, fill up the one to the right of it, um, going towards the right infield, and you're good. Nobody's going to complain about attendance if they can't see the rest of the stadium. Um, yes, but that's I, a camera trick that isn't indicative of how many people are actually showing up. Well, the attendance numbers are a, a numerical trick that's not indicative of how many people are showing up. And I'm not just picking on NYCFC here. That you know, Everybody in the league has complained that every team inflates attendance because it's sold and not butts and seats. Um, I think the real issue for Yankee Stadium is not going to be getting people in my, underst- uh, my recollection of the season ticket situation is that it's the 100 and 200 sections uh, that were sold generally for these games and 300, 400, which is the upper deck, um, is off limits. And I don't know if they're going to tarp it off, which seems wasteful when the camera's not going to show up there or just leave it empty. Um, but I think the real issue is, you know, it's open air. There's no roof above the supporter section or above most of these groups or most of the seats um and the the sound just does not travel and that i think you're going to end up getting diminishing returns where people come back it's not going to be 43 because they're not going to open the upper deck it's going to feel a little less you know atmospheric and then you get some less people and then it feels even less atmospheric so it, it, it might end up being diminishing returns but we'll see there's certainly a possibility that people have bought into the team enough that they'll keep going back every week all right, let's uh, shift to Mathers on the field. Chris Winger, Jason Hernandez. So far, they've done a pretty solid job at center back. That's uh, mm. one pretty unlucky goal conceded through two games. Is that sustainable? Or do does NYCFC need Mendoza to work his way into the lineup? Does NYCFC need George John to get a knee transplant. Does, and, does NYCFC <laughs> need to just sign actual center backs? And more importantly, who is Mendoza? Yeah. I'll let Dan answer well, that. I, I can't answer the who is Mendoza question because I, I haven't been close. The team has not done a lot of practices in areas that I can get to. Thomas, can you uh, answer? Can you tell us real answer. quickly who this Mendoza is? He is a center back, uh, Ecuadorian He's defender. Literally reading this off his iPad. Well, I brought him up. I just wanted to. I wanted to verify his nationality before just putting it out there. Uh, yeah, Ecuadorian defender, center back. That's really all I know. But he was a player who was brought in to be a starter for this team and hasn't quite acclimated yeah, as quickly I, I as they I were hoping. Yeah, I think I saying during media day that he needs to acclimate to the North American environment before he's ready to get on the field more realistically. That just means that the YouTube regularly. video they saw of him when scouting was <laughs> grossly overinflating his ability. You lied to right, us about it. possibly. Uh, Dan- also talked George John up a ton. He's like, I can't believe nobody's talking about that we've got George John. You know, if he gets healthy, we're in a really good position, which struck me a little oddly because it's like you're saying, 
uh, we've got this great talent, but there's no guarantee we're going to see him this year. That would be like why saying, "Why anybody give us credit for that?" That'd be like saying, "Why aren't people talking up Adam Nemich? If he starts scoring <laughs> goals, we'll be golden." <laughs> Dana, yeah. Dan, I want to play uh, something for you that uh, you may have you may have heard. Obviously, you guys were at the post game meet availability, and it's about the field at Yankee Stadium, and it's a. <laughs> It's an incredibly condescending clip of Jason Christ. He knew exactly what it was when you yeah. mentioned it. I did. I did. <laughs> so, so let's play this for our listeners. This is uh, Jason Christ, obviously. He's answering a question the reporter asked, which is just, how does the width of the field, 70 yards, affect the game? Do you know how... how... Hold on a second, sorry. <laughs> there we go. Do you know how, how wide all the fields are in the league? How, how wide are they? Most of them are between 74 and 85. No, you're incorrect. Most of them are between, all of them are between 70 and 75. So ours is four yards wide, four yards less wide than the average. And, and there's quite a few of them that are actually 72. So this is, we're making a big deal out of nothing. For me, our field is, is the proper size. 70 okay. yards is proper size. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> Let me tell you why Jason Christ is wrong. First of all, uh, the the smallest field in MLS is you know is, is seventy yards. It's just Yankee Stadium and BBVA. And to be honest with you, I, the dimensions that in Houston may have changed since Owen Coyle started. But the smallest field, other than those two, is seventy four yards, um, which is there are several that are that dimension, which is the FIFA recommended width, and they go as wide as seventy seven yards, right? So. This this is this is sort of uh, not I don't know. So one he was, number one he was wrong, and number two he was being extremely condescending while being wrong. And, and also I mean what like it's it's this is soccer. I mean four yards is a lot, right? Like a f- four yards different difference in yeah, that, the width of a field can literally change how an entire team approaches the game. That that was the answer of a man who was extremely sick of being asked that question. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Christ has been asked that since he took over, or at least since they announced that they were going to be playing at Yankee Stadium. Uh, he he doesn't want to answer that anymore. The same way he doesn't want to answer Lampard questions anymore. And I can't say I blame him, but you know the answer, especially because as the, uh, some of us were checking Wikipedia as we were in the locker room and going, "Oh look, Stad Saputo is seventy-seven wide." Oh well. Um, so it's it's I, I don't know if Jason understands necessarily that he's not in Salt Lake anymore, but if he if he keeps that attitude up during press conferences, um, you know the press coverage is going to swing in a very weird way very quickly. I did like the and you probably couldn't hear it because it's very low in the audio, but the uh, response of the reporter when Christ says, "Do you know how wide every MLS field is?" and the reporter just goes, "Yes, I do." And then, and then, <laughs> And then he starts naming them. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, I think Christ would be better, better served by just saying, look, this is a reality of our situation right now. Our field can't physically get any wider. We have to adapt to it. Instead of saying, you know, this, our field's dimensions are perfect. I mean, I'm sure on a, in, in a perfect world, Jason Christ would want a 75-yard field, not a 70-yard. So anyways, uh, so let's, let's, let's move on a little bit. Um, let me let me just skip over this question that just says is Adam Nemich the worst player in history? We actually asked that question yes, on, last on. Week's, yeah. on last week's show. <laughs> yes, as exactly. Well. Um, I wonder what you think if they you know, your thoughts uh, after watching Sunday's encounter. You think they need to find a way to get Kyrie Shelton uh, and maybe even Patrick Mullins on the field? Uh, I think 
you know, those two players could plug in for Velasquez and uh, and Nemec and, and maybe at this point be an upgrade. I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think the challenge with Kyrie is if he's so good coming off the bench, do you want him starting? And not that that should necessarily make a giant difference in his performance. The Bronco Bosca, the question, if you will. <laughs> well, I don't think Kyrie Shelton smokes a pack a day. So. Yeah, yeah. My girlfriend's I mean, also not in love with Kyrie Shelton. I hope he, not. He's come not yet. on in the last two games, and he's made this you know, giant impact very suddenly. Now, whether that's because Kyrie's coming on or because Nemec is coming off, who knows? Um, I, I, and in fairness, I don't know how much of last night was New York being good or the revs being terrible because yeah. you know even before the red card they were getting cut up by David Villa um, in that defensive line and if it wasn't for Bobby Shuttleworth that would have been a four nothing five nothing game or four three five three because God knows Juan Agadella should have had a couple of goals uh, so I I think it's I think they probably should figure it out I don't think Nemec is panning out after two games but maybe he'll get hot and maybe it'll work out I mean. Let's remember that uh, Bradley Wright Phillips last year didn't uh, had one goal in the first four games, and then got hot for the rest of the season. So I'm I'm not willing to count anybody out in this league, uh, but except the Chicago Kyrie Fire, he has looked good. And Patrick Mullins, you know, comes in and plays his first six minutes, and I think with his first touch of the game, scores on his old team. That you know, that's kind of compelling. So we now have it from Dan Dickinson. Expect a 27-goal season from Adam Nemec. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> what I said. All right, Dan. Um, this has been entertaining as always. We're going to let you go and get on the uh, the path and head back to Jersey. So Dan Dickinson, Gothamist correspondent, fourth member of Open Wide for Some Soccer, uh, statistician when necessary. Hasn't been the case yet. Uh, Dan, your prince, have a nice night. Thank you, guys. Talk to you soon. All right. I, I want to discuss uh, something Dan brought up. New England Revolution. Mm. Real quick, uh, three four seven seven five six six two seven six. If you want to get in on this, we're going to talk about some general MLS stuff now. So uh, let's not let this be our first show without a caller. Would it be second? We've we've definitely had at least one. Like six I think or six like or two seven. or three. Well, to no, be fair, we we have had two guests on for rather lengthy yes, stints so true. we we at least have that to fall back and, on true so and please call in or skype in if you want to uh bash the new england revolution backline because that's what's about to happen yeah or, that sounds fun or bash thomas bash anybody three four seven seven five six six two seven six all right thomas thomas onwards. you have the floor okay uh, jose gonzalez <laughs> Uh, I, I'm so I'm so excited. I don't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> Gonsalves, Andrew Farrell, two games in, like that's the that's as big a sample size as we need. Like it's not it's not going to happen. Like that that center back duo will not get the Revolution into the MLS Cup conversation. It might not get them into the playoffs. Like uh, they they let AJ Soares go and simply decide to go the route of not replacing him, which sometimes works out. Uh, they had a, a good uh, backup fullback in Kevin Alston who can step into the lineup and allow Farrell to shift inside where it was debatable whether maybe that's his better position. He's a big, strong defender who's maybe not the greatest in distribution, so it makes sense to shift him from right back to center back. But through two games, that is not his, that is not his position. He does not have the awareness 
he does not have the decision-making ability to play that position, and they have been completely torched with that Gonsalves-Farrell pairing, and they, they have to make a move or a tactical adjustment or something uh, if they want to compete in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I think that the first goal for New York was a good demonstration of that. Uh, for Farrell, especially because there was a little bit of a, a give-and-go between Velasquez and, and Villa, or Grabovoy and Villa. Yeah. Um, Farrell just kind of steps up, isn't really close to winning the ball, and in doing so, leaves a huge void behind him in which Villa is able to get the ball and just walk in on goal one-on-one. And that was a, a perfect example. And there was another opportunity moments before that when Villa had the ball uh, top of the 18. Gonsalves had him contained, and Farrell inexplicably stepped up to basically double team via and via just laid it off to a wide open Nemich who, if it had been any other player, that would be the first goal of the game. <laughs> right. And uh, it's interesting because I mean, new England for a lot of people were one of the favorites to win everything in MLS this year, supporter shield MLS cup. One of the three of us here may or may not have picked them to win supporter shield for the goal.com preview. Um, and I'll give you a hint. It wasn't Thomas Floyd. And I don't work for Goal.com and either. And Pablo so. doesn't work for Goal.com. Um, so great foresight there on my part. Of course, we're only two games in. But right. uh, certainly a little bit of disconcerting signs, not just in the back line, but I, I think up top they haven't really put everything together. Of course, Wynn missed the first game. But I think Agudelo is looking really rusty. He uh, hasn't really made a big impact charlie davies questionable whether he can really recapture that lightning in a bottle of his postseason run last year chris tierney was the source of about 99 percent of their attacking opportunities (laughs) he looked good Oh, he, he always looks good. Yeah, Tierney should yeah. get a look. I, I I don't know. Like this is the, I know I've been beating this drum. Are we on the a, same? Okay. I, yeah, oh, yeah. I've been, I've been right. beating the tyranny he, for. He should be the Brad Davis of this World Cup cycle. I just calling it. Yeah, I mean, name <laughs> name name one person in MLS who hits a better cross than Chris Tierney. Uh, Diego Valeri. I mean. <laughs> He doesn't really camp out on the flank and hit in balls often. Our producer Trevor pa- wants, Pedro to make, Morales. wants to make the suggestion Dane Richards. Dane Richards. <laughs> That's, you know. Uh, but no, I get – no. Okay, name tier, one – I'm tier, sorry, I'm sorry. Name one American. Name one player eligible for the United States national team that hits a better cross than Chris Tierney. Brad Davis. But I, I, I'm – Who's not 60 I'm, years old. I'm, I'm being a dick right now. I, I'm completely on board with the tyranny for national team look. Campaign. I'm going to – yeah, I've been banging this drum, and I, I've gotten some blowback from people who question his ability to defend at an international level. Like, uh, like how Breck Shea is a ace defender as the left back <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. But, I mean, if nothing else, tyranny – could get a look at somebody who you could put in late in a game when the U.S. is chasing a goal, put him in even as a, as a left winger or something, just somebody who who can hit that sort of service. And and, and he's great on dead balls too, not yeah. just uh, crossing, but but also free kicks. I mean, he yeah. you've seen him score some. Oh yeah, playoffs last year. Yeah, he was lethal for them. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, we we got some other issues from MLS this weekend to discuss, notably. Three very vital, some would say all, botched referee decisions. Um, We have Justin Morrow being 
sent off for Toronto for denying an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. Toronto loses at Columbus. Uh, we have a last-second penalty kick that goes against Marisa Du in Philadelphia. Luke Mulholland goes down. RSL ties the game. And then we have Blas Perez, one of five FC Dallas players <laughs> camping offside who was able to score a goal in, in their win this weekend. Uh, thoughts on, on, on these three referee decisions? I'd like to uh, recreate a bit of a debate we had before the show, which is, is MLS officiating um, tangibly worse than the officiating we see in the Champions League or Premier League? Or is this kind of a, a perception where fans of every league that they watch on a regular basis are going to really scrutinize the missed calls and say, man, our officials are the worst. They need to get on their A game. Uh, well, you know what? Let's go to the phones real quick, actually. 925, you're on Open Wide for some soccer. How can we help you? Yeah, this is Dave, 925. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Yeah, not bad. Uh, I just apologize. I, I hope you guys haven't already gotten into this, but I did want to ask you about Chicago Fire so far this year. What do you think? Yeah, we. Uh, I have that's next on the rundown. I have. I have on this list right here to talk about the fire. Uh, let, let's talk about Chicago a little bit. And the, he's not even referring to the team. That was just shorthand for the dumpster fire that resides at Toyota <laughs> Park. Jesus Christ, man! <laughs> um, are you a Chicago Fire fan? Uh, that depends on how the next you know couple of minutes go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Great right. answer. I wish we had the ability to determine the fandom of everybody who listens to the right. show. Yeah, uh, I'll say this: the uh, when I was looking at uh, every team in MLS during preseason and putting together, we did power ranking votes at Goal dot com, and uh, there were three teams that stood out to me as real contenders for the wooden spoon for the worst team in MLS. And it was Montreal, New York, Red Bulls, Chicago fire and the fire. I just, I see a team that was bad last year, uh, had a lot of backline issues that were not addressed properly. And then they bolstered their attack by really splashing the cash on three designated players who are complete unknown commodities who through two games, two of those DPs have been, bus based on a very small sample size and the third dp has been injured so uh i would not be terribly optimistic about the fires hopes this season anyone else care the way well in? I, and also <laughs> i mean you talk about some of their issues in, in, in attack but i also think that you know they signed three designated players in the offseason and none of them address their defensive issues the jeff lorenowitz issue and and Lavelle Palmer, who I, I think is an, an okay player, but has the penchant for big mistakes, as we saw this weekend. And I right. mean, you know, when you, you're not getting a lot out of your DPS, and then your first two games are decided by mistakes from your back line, you know, it's it's not an encouraging start. And I, I have to say, Frank Yallop, if the, if this continues, he's gonna go to the top of the list of coaches on the hot seat in MLS. Mike Pecky will be coaching the fire by uh, June. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, uh, Dave, what do you thought about Chicago? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm just trying to stay optimistic, so you all aren't helping with that, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the one thing that the fire I'm going for them is that this is MLS, so the three of us are sitting here talking shit and saying they're the worst team in MLS, and they could very easily make the playoffs and or 
you know, when the conference or something like that. You, you literally never know. And also, know. Uh, David Akam, not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but the Ghana international striker who is probably the highest profile of the DPs they added. He has, just based on his resume, looks like a guy who could really tear it up in MLS. So maybe if he gets healthy, gets in the lineup, he can help turn things around. And I have to say, though, they have a lot of these DP, DP attackers, but if I were a Fire fan, I wouldn't want any of them to replace Quincy Ameriqua in the lineup because right. he's a beast. and he, Exciting to watch. He's yeah. definitely their best player over the first couple games. So anyways, uh, Dave, uh, please stay strong. You never know. Might turn around. Um, yeah, well, uh, Matt Polster looks okay, and so we're just gonna we're gonna say that that's a positive and move from there. Uh, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. <laughs> Dave, uh, we appreciate the call, man. Take care, bud. Yep. Yeah, Matt Matt Polster got the earliest yellow card for persistent infringement I've ever seen in my life <laughs> against Vancouver. It was in it was in the third minute. I'm not kidding, and it was actually the right call. He had a foul in the first minute, and the referee kind of talked to him. And then he had another foul a minute later, and the ref talked to him again, and both fouls were kind of borderline yellows. And then, lo and behold, the next minute, he had another foul where the player was going into the box. So it was not only a borderline yellow card foul, but also denying a a pretty good goal-scoring chance, and he got a yellow card. I've never seen anything quite like it. All right, so let's go back to Thomas's question. I, I, I do I do want to talk about this a little bit. I, I mean, so I, officiating actually if, worse in MLS, or are we just making a bigger deal of it? All right. So, and we talked about this a little bit before, and it's it's a difficult question to answer because obviously, all of us and all you guys listening out there, listen, you know, we watch a lot of soccer, but it tends to be sort of absolute top shelf soccer, EPL, La Liga, whatever, Champions League, <laughs> Chicago Fire, New York Cosmos, uh, USL Pro. PDL. Anyways, um, so obviously, I mean, I think it's it, there's really no way the officiating in MLS is going to be as good as it is in those leagues. I just happen to think that it is much, much, much worse. And I also happen to think that if you know, obviously, there's you know Don Garber, plenty of other people seem to bat around this idea of being one of the top tier leagues by 2022. That will literally never happen unless the officiating is better. All it's, right. it's it's it, it's I watch some of these games, and it's just Bush League shit, you know. Okay. I, I'm i not denying that that happens. We we saw it with uh, the calls we uh, spoke about earlier, particularly the Blas Perez one and the, the, one against more, the, the dude, Maurice Adu PK. Oh like, considering terrible. the situation, like, you have to be sure to call the what, 89th, yeah. 88th minute penalty kick. Um uh, I mean, I'll I'll do the obvious thing and point out we had a Champions League game this week where Zlatan Ibrahimovic for PSG just got a ludicrous red card against Chelsea that uh, really should have ended PSG's Champions League run. Uh, Chelsea had some tactical choices that we really don't need to get into that kept that from happening. And then the official missed probably two to three chances to send off Diego Costa for Chelsea. Just it was a game filled with high-profile errors that completely changed the, the tone of, of the game and, and really should have changed the outcome of that series. And uh, the, the point I'm getting to is it, it happens. It happens in Champions League. We saw in the Premier League uh, earlier this month there was a, 
a mistaken identity for a red card that was pretty ludicrous. Yeah, it, if it, that if that happened in MLS, everyone would be saying only in MLS. Right. This only happened like it's happened. It's actually happened twice in England in the last two years. Yeah, so it, it happens everywhere else. It happens in the World Cup. Uh, granted, the World Cup sometimes has a, a jumble of officials from other continents, but st- it happens at every level. Yeah, You're I, such I'm... an apologist. <laughs> You're such an MLS apologist. No, I'm 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 actually with Thomas on this one. I I, I agree that <clears throat> I agree that the standard of MLS officiating as a whole, when compared with say the English Premier League, is not as good. But I also don't think it's that much worse. And I think that there are so many other issues in MLS that are more pressing than the referees. And I, I think that there's also... The, like, the, like, just rattle off a couple of them. That are more... <laughs> I mean, the fact that Long Tan is not holding down a roster <laughs> spot, it needs to be addressed. There needs to be some sort of commissioner's... Uh, I mean, you're talking verdict. about all, everything that was addressed most recently in the CBA, essentially. Yeah, I mean any. Oh, I mean transparency, uh, player distribution. I mean everything. Scheduling. Every, scheduling. Yeah. yeah, I mean everything. Everything that you could think of, and it's just. I mean, and, and and the thing is, people tend to look at individual calls and see a bigger issue rather than look at just an individual call. Like, okay, a referee made a bad decision and he messed up. That is the referee's mistake it's not an occasion every time to be like mls refereeing is terrible right it's like it happens referees mess up Uh, i'll go on a slightly different tangent we don't need to really get into it but i i admire that garber is completely proactive in terms of wanting to have instant replay and Tech, different technology in MLS as soon as, just, as soon as FIFA is willing to experiment. I think it. that's like a publicity gimmick I, for I, Garber. It has nothing to do with, I think with Garber increasing really, the quality of officiating. I well, mean, he wants to be like a, you know, I mean, it's it's a headline I, grabber. I I don't know. I think uh, it's, it's a fairly American mindset. We already have replay in all of our other major sports to some extent. I think... Garber legitimately wants replay. If you have replay, that takes the pressure off officials. It, it reverses some of these terrible calls we're seeing and makes it less of an issue. I don't think you can expect officials to get everything right. Yeah. The only other thing MLS has pioneered is the vanishing spray, right? Yep, they had that before. Uh, they also pioneered the uh, six-second shootout. They, that didn't stick. They also pioneered uh, <laughs> not having promotion and relegation. They also... Pioneered allocation money. Premier League hasn't added yeah. that either. All right, let's, let's, let's go to the phones real quick. 703, you're on Open Wide for some soccer. How can we help you? Hey, what's up, guys? How's it going, man? Uh, they kind of show, by the way. I got a simple question. Sure. Will the ref thing be a problem for United this year? The ref saying for United? Uh, like I'm- the referee. I'm sure it's some. I'm sure at some point Geiger will do something for his own amusement just to piss off Ben Olsen. I mean, DC United are in MLS, and every team in MLS is subject to this issue. Whether you think it's an issue or not, so yeah, I mean, at some point this year, uh, except the Los Angeles Galaxy, so at some point this year, uh, DC United will be the victim of a bad call. Yeah, and when they are a victim of a bad call, I'm sure Ben Olsen will. Be super passive aggressive about it. I don't know. 
Sometimes it's not well, passive. It's, it's interesting because um, one of you guys mentioned Chelsea. And I've been reading a lot of articles about Mourinho and his tactics. Pretty similar with Olsen because, you know, that guy has a good team. As are, you know, Costa, Fabregas. Um, and the main criticism of him is why have all that talent is he so conservative? Because essentially, that's why he lost the series. If you think about it. Um. That is an interesting take. I see what you're getting at in terms of filling up a team with attacking talent and then playing a more disciplined style. Mourinho ball. Yeah. I'll say United last year, uh, like like Mourinho, we're going to do a lot of Ben Olsen-Mourinho comparisons here. Uh, (laughs) Olsen would pick and choose his moments uh, or pick and choose his games where he would really have them sit back and – uh, it, it's something he learned a couple years ago during that run to the Eastern Conference Final. He uh, kind of when they lost Dwayne De Rosario with the injury, and he figured if if we're only gonna win if we play ugly. Last year they. Which by the way, you gotta love that Dero Dax McCarty trade. Oh yeah, I mean that's another yeah. can of worms, but yeah, and this uh, I'll, I'll say Olsen last year. Led a team that scored a lot of goals, especially when Fabian Spindola and Luis Silva and Chris Rolf were all clicking uh, toward the middle of the season. They're, this is a team that he gives a certain amount of freedom to to attack, and he does pick and choose moments in, in individual situations where they sit back and play the Mourinho ball you were talking about. But I do think uh, Olsen does he does deploy the attacking talent he has uh, when he needs to. All right, man. Um, we appreciate the call. Obviously, thanks for listening. I mean, you guys have a good one. You too. That's a first. I don't think we've ever had a caller compare DC United to Chelsea and Ben Olsen to the special one. Who Who is the Cesc Fabregas of DC United? Is that uh, uh, is that uh, Luis Silva? Who is the like any to... Chelsea player of DC United? Uh, Pahoy is Fernando Torres. <laughs> <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. It's fair. Uh, fair. Uh, Well, although, yeah, as Trevor points out, I don't know if anybody saw this Guardian article today, but apparently uh, some some English soccer writer in an extremely rich move put Ben Olsen on a list as an online poll for who should replace Gus Poyet at Sunderland. He's only a couple percentage points behind Glenn Hoddle. (laughs) There was, yeah, there was a Guardian article, a poll. Who do you think should replace Gus Poyet as manager of Sunderland? There was a list of about eight names. One of them was our very own Ben Olsen. Seth, oh, you have wow. a, I thought there was some good stuff. Seth, do you have a working theory as to what happened here? <laughs> well, you guys think that it's because DC United and Sunderland have a partnership. Strategic partnership. A strategic <laughs> partnership. I, I just think they wanted to get an American audience talking, and they looked for whoever the most recent coach of the year in MLS was and took his name. Oh, really? Seth, you're not allowed to pose that theory without using the accent you wielded <laughs> before the show. Oh, right, yeah. I, uh, I would love to see Ben Olsen take over Sunderland and just come in. You know, all right, uh, so I'm here. So how much allocation cash do we get for finishing in last place? <laughs> and uh, we get the number one draft pick, right? Uh, and, uh, all, all those jokes about foreign coaches coming to MLS just in reverse. Absolutely. Oh, God. Uh, anyways, yeah, so, okay, so the three of us definitely agree that MLS has a horrifyingly large problem with refereeing. We're all in agreement on this. Uh, mm. uh, yeah. uh, 
I will say this. I don't think that the Justin Morrow call was as bad as some people are making it out to be. I think that's borderline because, yeah, he slid in and he got the ball, but then he continued sliding and completely tripped Ethan Finley with his body. Yeah, I I feel like uh, it was really close. I thought Perquise was borderline in terms of being close enough to justify making that just a yellow. I, I don't know. This but, is one of those things where Dan and I were joking about this earlier. It's a, the whole attitude of MLS fans, actually soccer fans in general, the I got the ball first, so it's not a foul. And actually, even commentators are guilty of it, right? You watch ESPN, Fox Sports, whatever. They say, oh, I think he got the ball there. Yeah. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous play. It doesn't mean it's not a foul. You can't just do that. You can't just go, I can't leave Thomas's apartment go to a 7-Eleven, hand the cashier a soccer ball, put my foot on it, and then punch him in the face and take the money out of the drawer and say, hey, I got the ball first. It's <laughs> not how life works, you know? I just want to say somebody, uh, Jose Umania on, on Twitter, just sent us a YouTube video of the now legendary, at least to us, Ben Olsen press conference. I guarantee, after, I guarantee you the obscenities aren't in it, though, but, but retweet it anyways. We, so. Yeah, let's... There, I'll retweet it. And the, uh, you want me to play it? I'll play I mean, it right I now. mean, there's there's a lot from our soundboard on there, so maybe we should, yeah, play the whole thing. See see if it. Uh, let's see. Not to feel a little done wrong by the joke. Yeah, that's a, me. It's a joke. We get the same clown show every weekend. Uh, they, they all even out. They all even out. They don't even out. Bullshit. Bullshit. Not this year that happened. <laughs> Nobody, censored. nobody wants to hear the coach in last place complaining about the referees. Nobody, nobody wants to hear that. that. <laughs> but I got a group of guys out there. Men in there. there fought their tails, tails off. off. Yeah. We have them memorized. And they're, and they're gutted. Because I asked <laughs> them to give me everything, everything this week. I pushed guys to the limit with three games in an open. I can't. <laughs> uh, it's it's that was, embarrassing. That was one, I mean, one, that was obviously in 2013. Also on the Twitters, uh, at not in the 18 sent us a uh, interesting Washington Post article suggesting maybe what uh, DC United's animal statue could be at Buzzard Point to uh, match Orlando's lion. Headline: Woman unharmed after strangling a rabid raccoon that was attacking her. So I heard I read this article the other day. But how's this the woman was woman's it's she's from Richmond. She was walking through the botanical gardens there, and a rabid raccoon <laughs> bit her leg. Would not let go, and the woman says she feared for her life. She she just literally like got on top of the raccoon and slowly strangled it to death, just like shh, go to sleep, go to sleep, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, That's so badass. It turned yeah. out that the, yeah, it turned out the thing had rabies, and obviously, you know, she hadn't, you know, she hadn't uh, intervened like that, she might be dead. And the woman was so seventy five years old. Too. Shouts out to Cass Overton, seventy five year old. <laughs> uh, pretty sure you're not listening. And she. <laughs> She strangled the life out of that raccoon the same way Chris Wondolowski strangled the life out of the Brad Evans center back experiment. That was a, tra- was that a good transition. That no, a, that was a transition. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the earthquake Seattle game. Let's talk about Chris Wondolowski who overcame Charles. Our, our guest last week, Charles Bohm, and I were talking about this weight that it looks that Wando has been carrying. This sort of like you know big contract not living up to it sort of weight. Uh, he seemed to shed his chains in this past game. Well, I mean, 
that's true. He also was left completely unmarked on one goal and so he was left completely unmarked in that Belgium game. It didn't make any difference. <laughs> womp womp. Too soon. Uh, and uh, volleyed a uh, a rather disappointing defensive header from Mr. Evans for the second. So he uh, had a little help from the Sounders, but it's uh, yeah. I, I mean, we've talked about this before. I think we've all had various interactions with Chris Wondolowski over the years, and he is just Brett, like the most pleasant person in MLS, like the nicest guy. Um, and it, it's it's good to see him get a few goals and get whatever weight is on his shoulders, kind of like off his back. Yeah, because. Nothing takes the weight off of missing a goal to send you to the World Cup quarterfinals like winning an early season MLS game. Like hammering home a wide-open <laughs> finish against the Seattle Sounders. Yeah. Good, good for Wando. Good for the Quakes. Uh, they have actually had a, a better-than-expected start to the season, I would say. You know, they yeah. they lost their first game, but that was uh, – wait, what, what game was that again? Uh, Houston. or Cl- Houston. Was uh, it oh, no, Dallas. Dallas, Dallas right. Yeah. So it was a last-second loss. And yeah. Then, it, it, um, I think uh, Innocent Emigara, or as you're calling him, Innocent Emigara, <laughs> um, looked pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, He uh, that was his first star. He made, like, a cameo the previous week, and he looks like a player. He, you know, he, he never, looks like a player. That was my, that was my Great breakdown. Great work. <laughs> he, uh, some DPs, a lot of these DPs, they come in. You you don't know if they're going to adjust to the league, what type of player they are. I don't think many people had uh, much experience watching Innocent Emigara. Um, we weren't sure if he'd be another Igbonanike or... Uh, <laughs> Already using Igbonanike as the archetypical archetypical bust in MLS after two games. Two games. Not getting it done. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. But yeah, he looks good. Uh, earthquakes... That West Western Conference is impossible to project. I like who do you think will finish last in the West? It's it's very difficult. Chivas USA. <laughs> you know Chivas USA is still in FIFA, the game FIFA 15. And here's the best part is that if you have uh, obviously if you're logged into you know PlayStation Online or whatever you know whatever the Xbox version of that's called, uh, and it updates obviously the rosters and the standings in real time. It says, you know, if you select uh, LA Galaxy or whatever, it says position first. If you if you select Chivas USA, it's position twenty first. They don't even. It's like they're they they're in a sta- you know statistical place that doesn't exist, which is perfect. Tec- yeah. Technically, they should be ahead of like the Chicago Fire, who are zero and two with a minus three goal differential. At least Chivas are at, are at even. Get. Get EA Sports on the phone immediately, yeah. please. So um, let's talk about Brad Evans at center back, which is one reason the Sounders didn't win that I, game. I'm not going to lie. I thought that would work. Like, when they made the move, I was like, okay, Brad Evans, he's played D-mid well. He's played wide midfield well. He's played right back well. He's played left back well. I didn't think Why it couldn't he play? Well, I, think- I didn't think it worked. When it the pregame interview before his first start, the uh, one of the – whatever commentator was like, what's the one thing you have to remember – playing center back now and he just goes well i mean that there's no one behind me other than the goalie <laughs> i mean i don't know that's a good thing to remember <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, sounds, it sounds like he's got a good grasp on this position yeah he knows where he is located on the field that's important all right, all right let's go to the phones real quick 414 you're on open wide for some soccer how can we help you oh uh, yeah i was just talking oh, i wanted to talk about a little bit about the television how do you guys like the new television deal 
Uh, yeah, I, let's talk about Fox Sports One. Yeah, I think I, I like it. Yeah, I think that uh, there were a lot of fears about how Fox was going to cover MLS after their most recent go around. Uh, some perceived they didn't really give the league all of the respect that that it deserved, and this time around, I. I, I haven't had really any complaints. I think they've done a, yeah. a pretty good job. Yeah, I, I mean, you could also something I think a lot of people don't realize is aside from the fact that Fox Sports poached a lot of the talent from ESPN and and, and uh, NBC Sports Network, a lot of the on-air talent. Um, I had a conversation with Grant Wall where he was telling me that a lot of the guys, even in the truck, are the guys from the NBC Sports production. So. Yeah, I think I think really maybe that speaks to the quality of what you're seeing. I, I've been pleasantly surprised. Yeah, it's looked good. I John Strong and Alexi Lawless and having Grant on board. All those guys have been uh, top notch in these broadcasts so far. And uh, uh, I mean, Brad, Brad Friedel, whose services apparently are not necessary at White Hart. Lane <laughs> By the way, right now <laughs> there is though. We should say there is 100 percent too much Eric Winalda on the broadcast. <laughs> uh, I'm a little disappointed with it myself personally. Um, yeah, I read an article one time said that almost close to 40% of the league's fans are Latino. Uh, and to see a lack of diversity and opinion and perspective of the game on ESPN and on uh, Fox Sports 1 is it, just terrible. Yeah, you know what? All the other major sports here in America uh, where the demographics even skew sometimes even greater uh, 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 there's better diversity. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will agree with that. I think we all do, I think, aside from, and it's not just uh, racial diversity, I mean, aside from, uh, I think, maybe two sideline reporters, uh, you don't have any women in the booth, you know, so, uh, you know, I... I I certainly, uh, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, we're, st- we're still not sure what planet Eric Winalda's from, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think that ESPN, in, in terms of having Latinos on air, maybe has a little bit ahead of Fox when you talk about Alejandro Moreno, who's been doing a lot of work for them. Um, um, Monica Gonzalez, Monica Gonzalez, uh, Fernando Palomo, who calls uh, a lot of the Mexico right, games. Right, right. But when's the last time you've seen these guys on MLS games? Well, we're two games into the season, so I, I yeah. We'll, we'll see what their plans are. Maybe uh, correct me. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that Max Bredos is also Latino of some kind. I, I... Right, right. I think he's Cuban American. Okay, or yeah. Cuban Canadian or something like that. But I mean, I do think. Uh, uh, let's let's leave it clear though. I mean, I do think you make a good point, and I think there was actually a great article on Soccer Gods uh, about you know the the MLS opening weekend. I think they said that out of the twelve people assigned to those three games on Sunday, there wasn't one Hispanic broadcast member. So I, you know, I, I do, I do think obviously you, you, uh, you make a good point. I, I will say Monica Gonzalez called the, uh, she was sidelined for Orlando NYCFC. Uh, she yeah. was the only one actually now that I right, yeah. think about it. Yeah. But still. yeah, it's still a valid point. I think, I think certainly, like I said, um, ESPN seems to be a little bit ahead of Fox in that department. I think, I think even, uh, Univision is, ahead of the other networks and that they brought in <laughs> Marcelo Balboa and Lana Donovan <laughs> to diversify their crew a little bit. Univision has, or Univision or, or one of the other Spanish networks has Risto Stoichkov. Right. DC yeah, and I agree. Great. It's Univision. What is that? Univision that has Stoichkov. Yeah, which is kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting to see a, a, a well, Bulgarian guy doing know, Spanish analysis. 
but I've always uh, I've always felt that if you look at comparison, that Spanish language television has always been a uh, more diverse because it's not appealing just to uh, Mexican fans; it appeals to all Spanish language fans. And if you look at historically, the two major voices and the two biggest faces on Spanish language television, and Andres Cantor and uh, Fernando Fury, they're not Mexican; they're Argentinian. So their diversity of background has always been featured better, I think, than our English language coverage in general in soccer. Well, certainly, man, you've you've made some good points, um, and we don't entirely disagree with them. We really appreciate the call. Yeah, all right. Bye. See you. Uh, I will say, not really related to the particular point our caller was making, but I, I think it's big time that MLS has this built-in schedule that you can – Every, 100, every Friday yeah. night, you know there's a game, and it's on Univision. Two games on Sunday. Sunday, yeah. ESPN, Fox, FS1, back-to-back, same time slots, I believe, yep. every Sunday. Yep. That's, uh, that's five, huge. 5 and 7.30, that's going to be the path forward this entire year. Yeah. And then Saturday is kind of a, a jumble of local broadcasts, but, I mean, that's – I mean, at least you know. You know every week more or less what the schedule is going to look like, and that, that that's very helpful for, for drawing in fans. Mm-hmm. Um, before we wrap, do we want to discuss the uh, MLS going beyond 24 teams potentially in the expansion talks? Uh, does anybody here think that's a good idea? I don't think it's a yeah, good idea. I, I, was, I thought it was important that they follow through on the strategy that they've long championed of taking a deep breath at 24 taking what I think we th- both thought five years was a good amount of time to wait until you start talking about expansion I, I, teams again. I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm a very cynical person, but I, uh, this is no exception. I, I don't know why I ever thought that they would actually stop at 24 teams. Right. When uh, you have own potential ownership groups willing to pay those big expansion fees, it's hard to turn down. Especially when, you know, it's, a situation like Sacramento where there's already a team, there's already a built-in fan base, you know, I just, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if the league is ready for 28, 30 teams. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is a league that was at 10 teams in a decade ago. So over the past decade, it's doubled and it's looking to, if we go past 24 into the mid, you know, 2020s, we're looking at, tripling potentially by 2030 it's and uh, you said this before the show it's starting to follow the pattern of this kind of rapid growth of the old nasl and that's obviously mls has been very conscious of avoiding history there and i'm sure they have uh, lots of numbers and research that shows that the situation has changed and that you know they they are going to remain disciplined in their growth but still it's it seems like they just might be getting ahead of themselves trying to grow this league uh, past 24 when that had been their strategy for so long. Interesting to hear all this after the new CBA gets done, too. You know, I mean, I just feel like they, at the, you know, league office or, put, you know, prospective owners might feel a good deal more confident about squeezing some of these teams in now. On the plus side, the more you dilute the talent pool in MLS, the higher the chance at long tan appears in MLSs. <laughs> Just being well, realistic now. Listen, if a goal in a preseason friendly against Grand Canyon University <laughs> isn't enough to convince an MLS GM to take a shot on him, then I just don't know what it, what will be. Yeah. Um, 
Longtan did score a goal against Grand Canyon University the other night, and I was incensed that there was not a highlight package on Arizona United United's that, website. That they maybe didn't want to highlight the fact they lost three to one. They lost three to one <laughs> to Grand Canyon University. Grand Canyon University. Uh, to be fair, they must be in excellent shape because they get a lot of hill training. I, th- I think we should. Prob- I think we should probably wrap this up. Yeah, we're, yeah. This is maybe the longest episode ever. All right. Thanks as always to li- for our listeners. Thanks to Paul Tenorio. Thanks to Dan Dickinson. Thanks to Thomas and Pablo. Thanks Thank to me. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Seth. Bye.